Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and we are in the illustrious Lion's Den, and I'm with the godfather of Holy Smokes, Kay Hidamine, and Paul Felidis, who is one of the most interesting dudes that I know. He's got an incredible story. He's one of the regular hosts of the Holy Smokes group here in the motherland of Colorado Springs. Kay, welcome. Paul, welcome. First question, what you smoking? It is a Rocky Patel. Thank you. And, you know, I like him not as fat anymore. I like him a little narrower. Uh, and they just s- seem to fit better into my mouth. <laughs> okay. I'm smoking a Macanudo from the Dominican Republic. A little lighter wrap than I usually smoke, but that's what I had in my bag today. Gotcha. And I have a CAO Flathead 660, which is the last one of a group that I bought off of Cigar Bid. And uh, this is going to be one that I'm going to regularly have in my humidor. And it's been burning for a while. It has been. It has been. I actually lit it up in our last conversation, and we're now sitting down for another one that we're releasing a few weeks later. Paul. You have a very, very interesting story. Let's go ahead and just unpack this. You were born in Berlin, Germany. Within eyesight of the wall growing uh, up, correct? Definitely, yes, yes. The wall was actually constructed. I was 11 year- years old when we all woke up in a city with American tanks rolling through the inner city streets toward the border because it was from a Saturday to a Sunday morning that the, well, the wall wasn't built that fast where they, you know, to start with, they rolled out uh, barbed wire. Yeah. And there was a bridge nearby. I was born in East Berlin, but uh, by that time we lived on the western side and I was playing always under that bridge, and I was told then that I could no longer go to my favorite playground underneath that bridge. What was it like growing up in Berlin during those years? Well, one thing I remember is I roller skated a lot in the streets, and frequently we had MiGs flying over. That was one of the ways that... You know, West Berlin was an island within East Germany, and the Russian occupation, uh, they tried to constantly uh, harass West Berlin and scare us, and many windows broke when those MiGs suddenly, suddenly, whoa, flew over really low over the houses, and it was very scary. But... West Berlin includes a lot of rivers and forests. So unless you lived right by the wall or right by the borderline after 1961, you know, you could get out. So you didn't feel too claustrophobic because they are, as I said, you could go picnic in the forests and be on a river and so on. So it wasn't that bad. But whenever we traveled... um, my father is Greek and was Greek. And so whenever we traveled to Greece, uh, there were three roads that connected West Germany, transiting through East Germany toward Berlin. 
um, you had to go through checkpoints and they were a little scary. I, I, as a kid, I remember they were always scary because those border guards were very serious, very yeah. serious looking and guard towers and all of that. And they even, they timed you when you went through one checkpoint to arrive at the other checkpoint then because they did not want any collusion, any meeting with East Germans on the road. So they knew mm. how much time. And I remember once we even stopped somewhere in East Germany on the road and suddenly there were guards stepping out of the forest. <laughs> what? So they really tried to control that there was no interaction. I mean... Families were divided, literally, from one day to the next. People who lived on one side of Berlin and worked on the other side of Berlin or, you know, vice versa, they were suddenly separated. Families were literally separated. And you may remember stories of people jumping off roofs and trying to be caught by people down there with fire department head, uh, I don't know what it's called, where you can jump, you know, when there's a fire yeah. and you need to jump out of a window. And there were even times where people missed and hit the pavement. Mm. So, and families used to have to wave at each other across the borderline. I mean, in the beginning, it was just barbed wire, and then slowly, slowly, it was expanded, and then the wall was built, and then minefields were put together, and, and dog runs, and so it became harder and harder for people to escape. And there were all kinds of interesting maneuvers, you know, trying to ram through the barriers or, you know... Uh, so that was my my growing up. I'm an only child. My father, as I said, is Greek, and he was not the nicest guy. I think my mother, when she met him, you know, he was a charming Mediterranean guy, and she should have run the other way. But uh, she was alone with her mother. Her, my grandfather had uh, disappeared in the last two days of the Second World War when they were fighting mm. street by street in Berlin. And the Russians were there first. That's why they, the, the Russians were able to carve Germany, up, you know, the Allied powers, the British, the French, the Americans, and the Russians. The Russians got half of Germany and half of Berlin because they made it first to Berlin. And so my mother was vulnerable to the charm of a Mediterranean guy who was not a nice guy. He was a small-time gangster in Berlin. Mm. And we were very poor, and we lived in one room and one kitchen, and the three of us sleeping in the same room, and we shared a toilet with three other families and no hot water and wow. stuff like that. It was not until I was about 16 that we moved into an apartment with two rooms and hot water. I remember that was a wonderful development. I hated life with a passion until, really? well, until I was about 19 or so. I remember walking to the bus stop to drive to my school and cursing, cursing the wind, cursing the trees, cursing the houses I walked by. I hated life with a passion. And my mother 
hated my dad as well, but I tried mm. to run away a few times when I was a baby, and he always found us again and bribed and got her brother drunk in order to find out where she had gone. He wouldn't let her go. He would rather kill her than let her go. It was that kind of a mm. relationship between my parents that I grew up with. And we dreamt about killing him many times, but mm. never had the guts mm. to follow through on it. And of course, I'm glad we didn't follow through on it. But that's how I grew up. I was a hateful kind of a person. What changed? I ran away when I was about 18, but uh, got tricked into coming back and and ended up the last year of my high school in a sort of a boarding house, and but which was so much better than, yeah. than being at home. Yeah. The thing I think that fa formed me and kept me alive during those years was the fact that I had a lot of family in Greece. And yes, it was a difficult childhood, but the Greek part was wonderful. Almost every year, you know, you might think, well, he had a hard childhood. He went to Greece almost every year. <laughs> yeah. So that was what saved me in many ways. I had cousins and uncles and aunts and grandparents and Greek community and neighborhood in northern Greece. They lived in uh, what is called nowadays Kavala, but it was in the Bible called Neapolis, mm. uh, where Paul landed when he came to Macedonia, to Greece yeah. the first time, to Europe. That's It's right next to Philippi. So as a kid, I played in the ruins of Philippi, actually. What was that Greek family like? Oh, what, what was it was just wonderful. They lived all in a big house in, in Greece and overlooking the city. They were higher up and overlooking the city and there, the Mediterranean. And, you know, wow. being by the beach every summer, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. But my dad had uh, lots of bad uh, relationship with his parents, with his siblings there. And it was always stressful when he was there as well. But it formed me and it gave me a taste for life. You know, the family and the neighbors, they all visited each other always. We ate together out in the garden. And so it had a big impression on forming me and and for me to see community and neighbors and and so on when you would go how long would you be there you uh, went yearly a few weeks yeah okay. many years growing up i mean german summer vacations are not like american summer vacations i think you have two and a half three months here or something and there we had five six weeks summer vacation but it was an important part in keeping me going I remember when I was still at home until, you know, 18 or 19 or so, I listened a lot to radio. I was sitting in my room a lot. We didn't have a good family life. We didn't eat together. I got my food in my room those last three years that I was at home. My mm -hmm. dad and I, we just did not get along. I was afraid of him. And What did he, your dad do? You said he was a small-time gangster, yeah, but what did he do? Well, buying and selling things that were stolen. And when I was a baby, he was in prison for a year. And so it was a, I hated eating. We couldn't eat together. I mean, I was just too afraid to, to chew and, you know, do something wrong and get, mm. and my dad he didn't beat me that much. He did beat me and my mom, 
but he lectured and he i think he had a mental thing that was not altogether there yeah. he yeah. was able to literally lecture for six, eight, and even ten hours me sitting on a chair and listening to him I mean, I had to zone out because I could not follow yeah. his lectures. I couldn't follow yeah. and understand. And whenever I was supposed to say something, I, I had no idea what to say. So it was a bad thing also for later on in my life when I was in a relationship, when I was married, it affected me. And it took a few years to get to learn how to be in a relationship, how to talk, how to follow, because my mind could not keep up. My wife, fortunately, is one who likes to talk and likes to work things out. But I was not a good talker. I was not mm -hmm. a good engager because yeah. my mind went blank. Yeah. And that's what I had learned as a kid, to go blank because otherwise I would have gone insane, I think, because I couldn't follow my dad's way of acting and talking. Tell me about your mom. My mom was great, a very beautiful woman. And I felt guilty in, in the latter years of my teenage years, especially when I was out of the house. I felt guilty that she had stuck out for my sake, I felt mm. like, of staying with this man. And because if I wouldn't have been around, maybe she could have jumped ship and run away. But Germany, too, when you have to be registered with the police wherever you live. And so even from one neighborhood to another neighborhood, you had to deregister with the police and re-register elsewhere. So it's very difficult to... Even in West Berlin? Yes, even in West Berlin. Because, you know, Germans are much more formal and, you know, everything has to be, you know, registered properly and so on. And not like in America, I feel like when I picked up on the way here in America, how it works, I mean, you can literally just pack up and move. <laughs> and change your name and move to another state and move across country. But in Germany, at least at that time, and maybe it's still so in many ways, I don't know anymore, but you had to register. So it was difficult to start a new life. And I wish my mom could have gotten away. And so I felt guilty later on in my life that I was the reason that she had a miserable life. The hippie period... You know, Woodstock, San Francisco, you know, when you come to San Francisco with a flower in your hair, those kind of things that I heard on the radio um, had a marvelous influence on me. It raised hope mm. in me that there was more to life, mm. that, that there was a better life or a better community or a better way of being. One thing I did, I studied a lot of in my room, I drew maps of the world. I literally drew maps all the time of Spain, of South America, and so on. And I dreamt of the world. And my biggest dream for many years in that context was to travel, to see the world. And looking back now, I mean, I'm so grateful. I've seen a lot of mm. the world. I've been to many, many dozens of countries. And my dream <laughs> came true in many ways. And... So in my latter teenage years, uh, hearing about the Beatles, you know, being in India and coming back from India and Eastern religions, all of that. How did you get to India? Well, all of that had an influence on my life. And 
hashish and LSD period and Timothy Leary, you know, those kind of things uh, had a great impact on me. I took a lot of LSD. I wasn't afraid of losing my mind. I had friends who, you know, had bad trips. I didn't have bad trips because I wasn't afraid of losing control in my yeah. being on LSD. And it very quickly opened up something to me in my psyche, in my mind. I, the first LSD trip I took with a couple friends, I looked up. Instead of sitting in the corner with my eyes closed, listening to music only, I looked up and I felt like there's a universe out there. There's more to life. And, mm. and I began to ask, is there a God? Prior to that, you never really no, asked that. Never you, really. Would you consider yourself agnostic or even atheist? Nothing. I just had no exposure to church, had no exposure to religion. It did not. I Which I find kind of fascinating because when you think of Germany as someone who was born and raised in the evangelical tradition, you look back at Germany and there's a rich history of faith that came out of there even before the Reformation, even before Martin Luther. Well, I wasn't allowed to have friends because we were so poor. I wasn't allowed to go to friends. I wasn't allowed to have friends over. We were very insular. And it's got to be hard it was, as a kid. It was very hard. It was very difficult. That's, I think, why I hated life so much with a passion. Oh, man. And when I took LSD and, and got to know other people in, you know, hippies in that time, um, hope arose really strongly about really? that there's maybe more to life. And so I pursued, I mean, when I, okay, so in Berlin, I hung out a lot. I was a seller of drugs. Um, I, when you were 18, 19? Yeah, yeah, I started buying and selling drugs and stood on street corners and tried to peddle, peddle <laughs> hashish particularly and LSD. And I realized I was going to die if I wasn't going to get out of that environment. I used to hang out in dance clubs until 6 o'clock in the morning and slept the famous memorial church in Berlin in the downtown Berlin. I just slept there by the church on the concrete and I was getting down and down and sick and one day decided I just needed to get out and my mom helped me I said goodbye to her. I took a train south, and I ended up in northern Italy, and I just wanted to go south where the sun is. And I ended up in northeastern Italy, slept on the beach, and was thrown out of coffee shops because I didn't look inviting enough for other guests to come to the coffee shop or restaurants or whatever where I used to hang out. I was, you know, flea-infested and dirty and all that, and what had a big influence on me was the local hippie in northeastern Italy in Rimini in a place uh, befriended me and invited me to his house. His parents were gone. He came from a rich family. His parents were mm -hmm. in Sardinia. And I got to know him and a whole group of friends of his. And they were friends who Really, these were probably together. your first friends. Exactly. They cooked together. They played music together. They 
sat around the fire together. They smoked hashish, and I had brought a lot with me, so I I was popular in some circles there because I provided a lot. And but it had a big influence on my life. And then we traveled. They wanted to go to Rome, and I traveled with them to Rome. And I mean, I learned. I often say I learned to live in Italy. Mm. I learned. That's a great place love. to learn to live. Yes, the food was great. Fellowship was good, and uh, yeah. Paul, share about how you're actually in a famous movie. Rome. Oh, that's right. Yes. I happened to hang out in the old thieves part neighborhood of Rome. Santa Maria in Trastevere is a great place to go if you ever go to Rome. There's a great church there. There's a fountain in the middle and restaurants around. And we used to sit on the steps of the fountain, play music, and hippies came from all over the world and hang out there. And because we made too much noise, I think one night, there, I don't know what brought it about, but there were four entrances to that piazza. Yeah. And literally there were columns of police coming through three of the four roads, and we were all chased away. And I don't know how Fellini heard about it, but Fellini was starting a movie on Rome, and he reenacted that whole scenery. And I was an extra in a Fellini movie called Roma. And on that piazza, as well as then at the, the Spanish steps, everybody knows the Spanish steps in Rome. Yes. And there's one scene where I'm the only person in the scene playing a flute, being very colorfully dressed, you know, <laughs> even more colorful than I was. Anyway. That was a good experience. I even made some money, had good food and all of that. But from there, my longing was to go to India. Mm. And I... Why? Because of religious ideas, because of spiritual ideas. I got the feeling and the idea that, you know, India was religious and you could find enlightenment in India. So it became the focal point for my longing for my travel. I made it to Istanbul. I made it back to Berlin, I, back to Rome. And then I set out to travel to India. And, you know, it was so cheap at the time. Between Istanbul and Kabul, Afghanistan, I remember I spent $15 of travel expense. That's thousands of miles but, I mean, I had a student card, even though I wasn't a student, which is an interesting thing. There was a conviction at one point that arose, you know. I was on my way to learn truth, to find the truth, and yet I was lying about being a student. And I saw the disconnect there at really? one point, yeah. And slowly, slowly, I had... I had spiritual experiences in Tehran especially. Anyway, everything became focused on I wanted to make it to India. And my plan was to make it to India, to rip up my passport, to give my money away to the first beggar I would meet, to find a guru, to, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the boy guru and all of those kind of stories yeah. attracted me to, toward India. 
I made it to Kabul, I made it to Peshawar in Pakistan, war broke out in 1971 between India and Pakistan, the Indian Air Force flew all the way to Peshawar and Peshawar was blacked out and they tried to get every foreigner out again toward Afghanistan and so I ended up in Kabul again, I had $10 to my name, I bought a kilogram of hashish for $10 and I had an American who was willing to help me financially travel back to Europe. And I almost got caught with a kilogram of hashish in Istanbul, which would have been bad because <laughs> prisons yeah. in Turkey were not good. And I had to give up half of a kilogram to somebody who was already on the phone to the police to bribe that person to let me go. Yeah, And... Then a few months later, I made it back and made it back all the way to Kandahar, Afghanistan. And I was planning, I was in a, you know, thousands of hippies at that time were traveling from, you know, London, Amsterdam to toward Nepal, toward Goa and India. And also from the other side, from Australia, you know, I mean, literally tens of thousands of young people were traveling. And I was in a room with several other such travelers in Kandahar, and I decided I wanted to meditate out on the balcony that night. And I sat out there, you know, not much electric light, stars galore in the sky. And I was settling down to meditate, and there was a, uh, what do you call it, a shooting star. Yeah. And I think you have that in English too here, uh, the idea that, if you see a shooting star, uh, wish something, yeah? Yeah. And we have that in Germany too. Something welled up inside of me. Mm. And I said verbally, God, I want to know you. Mm. Just came out of me. And I had a sense of peace that came with that. And I felt like I didn't need to try to meditate that night out there. I went to bed. I fell asleep like a baby. Mm. Next day, as I walked somewhere and wanted to get something to eat or something, I realized that my passport and all my money were gone. So I was stuck again. <laughs> but immediately I thought, I wondered if that had anything to do. I felt like something was going on in my life. And I was making plans to still go to India and try to cross illegally into Pakistan toward Quetta in the south. And I had the ability, uh, I knew people there who were willing to help me continue going. But I made it to Kabul, which is another day journey from Kandahar. And two or three days after that experience in Kandahar and that prayer, I sat on the floor in a little hippie restaurant in downtown Kabul, a place called Siggy's Restaurant, which catered toward travelers like me. And I sat there and I saw three long-haired dudes walking in, sitting down, ordering vegetable soup, bowing their heads. And I could tell it was some kind of, you know, religious, spiritual kind of moment. I yeah. guess they were thanking God for the food. And I was drawn to them. And I walked over to them, sat down with them, 
and found out they were Christians. They were Germans, actually. And one of them from my hometown, from Berlin. I didn't know them before. But they engaged me. We talked. I liked them because not everybody in the hippie community was religiously oriented like me. And I was always sad that people were taking drugs just like people take alcohol to escape from life and to deaden their pain. Mm -hmm. And they were you know, more like me searching or whatever, finding or interested in God. But they always, it always came down to Jesus, the only way kind of a thing that they talked about. And I, yeah. I was sad that they emphasized that because I didn't think that was that great. But they came back into town every day for three, four days. And we talked every day. And I loved talking to them even though they were so narrow-minded in, in, <laughs> in my perspective at the time. And they invited me to come the following Sunday to a church service. And uh, I didn't know what a church service really is, and, and, but I agreed, and they picked me up with a taxi because it was on the outskirts of town, in anyway, in a neighborhood in the suburb of Kabul. And when I walked into that church, and I had a friend with me whom I had turned on to LSD, and we were traveling together by that time. And as we walked into this church, and it was a real church-looking building, it had just opened the week prior. And by the way, it was Easter Sunday that mm. day. And my friend... As he walked in, he was overwhelmed by the atmosphere of the, you know, it was marble floors. I mean, it was a, with a green roof uh, to fit in a little bit more because the mosques mm -hmm. had green roofs and so on. He was just emotionally overwhelmed and he lifted his hands, his arms up. And he wasn't a Christian mm -hmm. either. But then there was this man coming, rushing up to us and saying, hey, hey, we don't do this here. We don't do this here. <laughs> it was just a very sad. And I, I looked at him sad, uh, realizing that he didn't understand that my friend was just overwhelmed emotionally. And anyway, we sat through the service. There was this American pastor up front. It was a congregation community of doctors, nurses, missionaries, diplomatic people. It, it was a foreign community church. And I did not understand a word. I just remember seeing this preacher up there with his white teeth and big smile, and I had no idea what he was talking about. After the service, and this is important, the church, seeing that there were thousands of young people traveling through that city constantly, and they had a cemetery for foreigners, um, because a lot of people died there as well during those times, drug overdoses and so on. I never got into shooting up. Um, I had friends who did, and I watched them, but I could not get over the needle idea of sticking a needle into. And I'm glad I had a phobia against the needle. Yeah. Yeah. And they had decided, the church had decided to open their homes up for people like me. So I was sent home to a missions guest house for lunch, which was fine. And there was a whole group of people, not uh, because there were people living in the guest house. Anyway, it, I spent the afternoon there. And 
later on looking back, I could see things that affected me. Sitting around the table of people who were normal and natural and talked and were engaging and had laughed and ate and enjoyed the food and each other. Something you didn't have growing up. Which I was not that familiar with. And afterwards, this Norwegian nurse came and sat me down and talked to me. And I think she was trying to witness to me. You know, later on, I, looking back, I could interpret it that way. Yeah. And I was a friendly hippie by then. I was open to religious things. And I said, yes, yes. And I agreed. And at one point in the conversation, I had this real conviction coming over me that I was not really listening I was just mm. nodding and saying yes, and I felt like a hypocrite. Ooh. And, and this is two or three days after you basically said to God, yeah. I want to know you. Yeah. And when I internally accepted this and disliked that hypocrisy in, inside of me, I heard her much more clearly. I understood what she was, not understood necessarily, but I listened to her. And they played volleyball that afternoon. And a happy group of people. So when I look back later on, all of this prepared me. In the evening, they went back to church. And this little old lady that in the morning after the church service had come to me and introduced herself. I mean, if you would have taken a picture, she was a missionary lady from England, yeah. little old lady with thick glasses and a hallelujah bun in the back. <laughs> and if you would have taken a picture of her and me, it would have been an illustration of cross-cultural communication. And she was there again in the evening and after the church service, and I heard a little bit more from the preacher. I was more open by that time because of what I'd experienced and gone through that afternoon. And I, I heard a little bit more. I understood a little bit, bit more. By the way, the preacher was Ray Ordland. He was there for three months as an interim pastor. Christy Wilson was a founder of the church. He is a well-known, he's no longer alive, a missionary who had done a lot of pioneering work there in Afghanistan. And so after the church service, this little old lady came back to me with a tract in her hand. And I don't work with tracts, but that tract worked on me. Yeah. It was called the Bridge of Life, a, a chick tract. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with chick, these little chick tracts. And she gave me the gospel in one and a half minutes going through that little yeah. tract. And something blew up in my mind in the sense of I suddenly saw myself. Here I was in the middle of Asia intent on finding God. And I suddenly saw the ridiculousness of me, a finite being, you know, intent on grabbing a hold of the infinite and finding it. And at the same time, the realization that God became man and mm. anyway she realized yeah. that something was going on in my mind and my mm -hmm. head and she encouraged me and said when you go back to your hotel tonight and i was in a 10 cent a night hotel 10 cents so it was the <laughs> cheapest hotel i've ever stayed in and she suggested i kneel down by my bed and ask jesus to come into my life and you know i didn't understand all of that but i started crying and praying that prayer right then and there hmm. 
And I walked away from her praying, crying. And I saw my friend who I had turned on to LSD, who I was with in the morning, being at the piano, playing a little bit on the piano. And he looked at me and I looked at him. We saw each other from a distance. And I just felt like something shifting, <laughs> shifting in reality. Anyway, the pastor came up to me, praise the Lord, and people realized that, you know, something happened with me. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what praise the Lord means and all that. Anyway, that was my Christian beginnings. There was a community of former YWAMers, of new Christians. There was a community of maybe 30 people living there. Floyd McClung had started this community. He had traveled through there. The church had invited him to start a ministry to hippies like me. Yeah. And they invited me in to sleep there. And I slept there the first night. And it was clean sheets and everything was clean. and Not your 10-cent hotel. Not my experience. It was a little strange and so on. And they didn't keep me. They almost had a revolt in the house. The leader of the house was, at the time, Floyd was gone, but was a Filipino. And he didn't feel right about me staying there, even though the three guys, the three Germans who I had met, wanted me to stay and felt like I needed to stay. And they put mm. me out again. I went back to my 10 cent a night hotel, which in retrospect, I felt like was a good thing. Really? How so? Because they kept in touch with me and I kept in touch with them and I made my way out to them almost every day in the next couple of weeks and learned about things from them. And after two weeks, they did invite me to move in. And I think if I would have stayed there, I may have left after two weeks. But in this way, it ended up being much better. I had many questions and people looked at me and, you know, I didn't really like the Christians because they didn't seem to be as spiritual as what I thought spirituality looks like. But I felt that there was something there mm. that I needed to. One of the pictures that I remember at the time that really occupied my mind too was, hey, if there is a God worth following, you know, hey, if he's a boss sitting behind the table and I'm sitting on the floor in the corner of the room, you know, he would get up from behind the desk, come around and come to me. And that's what I felt like the incarnation and God's love and mm. how God is. That was like a picture I held on to. Floyd McClung sh uh, shortly thereafter came back and, you know, he was trained by Francis Schaeffer, you know, presuppositional apologetics. And he was not afraid of my questions. Several people in the house were afraid of my questions, didn't know what to do with me. and so What on. kinds of questions were you well, asking at the time? Very basic questions about spirituality and God. And, you know, I mean, my ideas were still very much, you know, pantheistic and so on. Yeah. So I was, at one point, I made a decision to stay and to give it a chance and to be willing to relearn everything from the bottom up. And fortunately, Floyd uh, was able to help me rethink everything. I ended up staying for 10 months, 
met my wife after two months. She came out as an 18-year-old from Southern California. She comes from a missionary family. She was right out of high school, came there. Floyd had recruited a whole bunch of people to work with people like me to come to Kabul for the summer. And we didn't really like each other that much, but I think, again, there was some attraction there. She looked at me and thought, I'm a strange person floating off the ground still. And I looked at her, greenhorn, you know, 18-year-old, knows nothing, you know. How old were you at the time? I was 21. Okay. So what was significant about the church was the fact that they had literally made a decision to open up their homes, open up their lives to these smelly flea-infested, barefoot, dirty-looking hippies to reach out to them, and it made a big impact. I met a guy who had become a Christian the week before me there, and that summer, in those 10 months, we had lots of hippies come through the house. Embassies would send stranded Westerners, French people, Americans, British people who had lost their passport, who had been stranded, sick. They sent them to the house. It was called the Dilaram community. The community of the peaceful heart was a Farsi word, Dilaram. Mm. So I saw a lot of others become Christians and we had meals together. We had chores together. You know, I heard Christian music for the first time, love song, children of the day, <laughs> you know, that kind of, which was, you know, had a yeah. big impact on me. So I didn't make it to India then. I went back to Berlin at one point to help my family, to turn myself into the police, to you know, try to do things right, to reconcile. And then I, after a year being back so in what Berlin... what happened when you turned yourself into the police? Yeah, so that, they looked up um, things, uh, but they th sent me home. <laughs> they, they didn't care. They were, yeah, they didn't want... I gave my testimony in a German Berlin church at one point, and afterwards this guy came up to me and said, I know you. I kept an eye on you. When I was hanging around that church in Berlin, I was trying to catch you in the act. He was a police undercover yeah. guy. <laughs> and he was happy to see that I had become a Christian. And I worked with the Jesus People Church in Berlin. There was a Jesus People Movement, German-speaking Jesus People Movement, and I was part of their ministry for that year. And then I joined YWAM and then met my wife again in Amsterdam. We were happy to see each other again because we had, you know, common history in Kabul. And so it was yeah. something that drew us close. And we ended up marrying in 1975 and went back to Afghanistan, reopened the ministry in Afghanistan. Then she dragged me as a souvenir to Southern California in 1978. <laughs> it was my first time to America and yeah. ended up in some mission executive who was a professor at Fuller Seminary heard that I had come to California and called me up. And I had just been there one week, literally called me up and said, hey, there's a course starting in two hours at Fuller Seminary, and I think you would like it. And I've already talked to the dean of the school, and I'm paying half, and he's paying the other half for you to take this course. I had no idea what Fuller Seminary was. I had seen on the map Fullerton. I thought it was in Fullerton. But <laughs> sure enough, I made it. I called Mary up, and, and I went 
two hours later, I was sitting in a seminary course offered by Paul Hebert, who was well-known in certain circles, and I sat next to the guy who started Vineyard Churches, um, Wimber. He was a fellow student sitting next to me. Really? Yeah. And John Wimber. Yeah. After 20 minutes sitting in the class, I felt like jumping up and down with delight, the stuff that I heard. And keeping it short, I begged them if I could take another course. It was an intensive two-week course. I had to learn how to study, how to use a library. I'd never been to college. Yeah. It was a graduate school. And I didn't care about degrees. I just wanted that material. I, was, I loved what I had heard there about missions. And, you know, he had grown up in India, Paul Hebert and so on. So I literally begged my way through course after course. And after three <laughs> or four courses, they looked at me and they started a category called special student. <laughs> and that became an important category subsequently. A lot of people who didn't have the same schooling requirements, etc., were able to go through that same door, and I was a guinea pig. So I took a two-year course, but it took me four years to go through it. I worked supermarkets, La Crescenta in Southern California, And not like, yeah, La Crescenta. And I graduated, then I joined a group in Seattle, a missions research group that focused on Soviet Central Asia. I traveled to mm. Soviet Central Asia. We did research reports on Mongolia, which at the time was completely closed still. So early 80s was that time I organized a conference on Mongol evangelism in Tokyo. And Then after three years with that research group, George Otis in Seattle, we rejoined YWAM in Amsterdam. And Floyd McClung had just become the international director of YWAM, and I organized a research department for him, researching YWAM, researching mission trends worldwide, starting a world Christian news publication that mm. was a digest of news for mission-minded people to inform about the Muslim world, the Hindu world, the developing world, just lots of digest kind of items. And after seven years running that, I brought a communications office for youth with a mission from Amsterdam and relocated a team of about 15 people yeah. to Colorado Springs. So I brought the first YWAM team to Colorado Springs in 1992. And right around that time, the 30 Days of Prayer for the Muslim World was called. YWAM called it to YWAM so that the YWAM ministries around the world were supposed to pray during Ramadan for the Muslim world. And because I had some exposure to it and so on, Floyd asked me if I could help get it off the ground in North America, and I volunteered to do it, thinking it was a one-time project. <laughs> 27 years later now you know i'm still, still going. doing it still going and it slowly grew and worldchristian.com is my dba and my website where we encourage learning about our world's neighbors learning about the muslim world the hindu world the buddhist world i have a bookstore there at worldchristian.com which are books that don't sell well but that I have a passion for Ooh, to yeah. help educate Christians about the wider world. 
And I am so glad I volunteered there 27 years ago to do that. So I distribute tens of thousands of prayer booklets that are educational in nature to encourage Christians not to be afraid of Muslims, not to hate all Muslims because of yeah. what they see on TV. And the news does a good job of brainwashing us. Yeah. That they are yeah. the enemy. But if you have never met a Muslim, you know, and most Muslims would make good neighbors actually, you know, then no wonder that you are yeah. afraid of them or hate them. The first third of my life was not very happy. I had not much reason to be grateful, but the rest of my life I am so grateful that I was called, that I was met by God and had the people willing to step out like this little old lady who was cross-culturally very different from me. So I'm a happy person. I have nothing to complain about. You know, Paul, in the years that I've known you, I have just been so impressed by your love for other people and also how you desire for people to break out of their mindsets that they've sort of ensconced in their mind of what other people are like, prejudices, basically. And your books and the titles that you carry, and I really believe that, that worldchristian.com, that you've created the bookstore there where you can buy books on different religions and the, you know, the prayer campaigns that you've now into the hundreds yeah. of thousands uh, if not millions over the last number of years that you've done this. How long since uh, the 30-day? 27 years now, yeah. And then you've just started and launched one for the Hindus? Three years ago. Three years, three three years, years ago, ago yeah. you started that. And what is that? Is it a 15-day? How, how does that work? It's a 15-days of prayer for the Hindu world. Hindu world. So the Hindu world prayer guide I publish every year now the last three years. And this year we started one on the Buddhist world. And people have been asking me for years, you know, when are you going to do one on the Buddhist world too? And now people are asking me on the Jewish world, on the Mormons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and what I love about that is the medium of that. You know, Steve, as you look at it, yeah. and Paul, it's beautifully crafted, wonderful pictures of the people that we're praying for, that they would be set free as well, that they would be set free from Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, that they would come into a truth of Jesus Christ. Right. And as you pray for them, your heart changes. Amen. Amen. You know, your heart starts to have compassion and love for them. That's what you has motivated for- me to keep going, seeing the paradigm mm. shifts and hearing yes. about the paradigm shifts that mm. participants have gone through, realizing that God doesn't only love Jews, for example. What? He loves Muslims too? <laughs> That's right. He loves everybody. Yeah. More than what we could ever imagine. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll tell you, I just want to invite people that if you're ever in Colorado Springs, you need to meet Paul. Believe this. Yeah. You'll be enriched. You'll be blessed. Your life will be better for it. And walk through that bookstore and look at the books and buy some of those books because, you know, God's going to touch your hearts. Pick up that prayer journal. And you're so gracious and so hospitable. I mean, you'll give a person a copy and say, go and pray for these people that don't know God, that don't know Jesus. Start your journey of just, you know, laying down your lives and just praying for them and spending time and investing energy into it learning about and learning them. about them yeah. really mm-hmm. and building that relationship and paul you know you really are in so many ways an epitome of what i call god's love for so many people i mean 
your Holy Smokes group down there is a place of welcome. I, I tell people, if they're coming to Colorado Springs, be sure you're around Wednesday afternoons because you get to hang out with Paul Felitas down there at his Holy Smokes group, and you're going to meet the most wonderful people. But most importantly, you're going to get a big hug from Paul. The and best you're going to feel so welcome. Hugs. The best hugs ever, man. And and he's going to he wants to hear your story. And that's what I love about the sincerity and love that you have, Paul, because of what Jesus has done in your life. Yeah, I second that. I mean, for a dude who grew up in a very dysfunctional home without a whole lot of affection, dude, your hugs are the highlight of when I show up at your place or even show up at Megan and ATNs and you're there. You're a very, very special dude. Thank you. Thank you for your encouragement and affirmation. So, Paul, you and Mary have been, now been married for how long? It's going to be 45 years Congratulations, dude. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. And, and you have you know, two kids? I, I'm willing to admit that I didn't think I would make it sometimes. You know, I mean, just like maybe many other families, you go through difficult times, and I've gone through my difficult times, and I was ready to run away from it because I'd learned escaping in the yeah. face of difficulties. Yeah. And I'm so glad looking back that I did not jump ship and run away and i love my wife i'm happy i'm so happy that we stayed together and that she remained with me you have two kids yeah two kids one in amsterdam he went back to amsterdam another international marriage you know my wife is from colombia she was born in colombia but culturally she is southern california and my parents two nationalities and her parents are two nationalities american colombian and my son met his wife in YWAM as well. She's from Ukraine, so he keeps it going. My daughter has moved back with a baby. She's single and single mother. And the, after she came out of the hospital with a baby, you know, she moved back in. Yeah. So we're no longer empty nest. We were empty nesters for a few years. And so we are engaged in loving our daughter and especially that little 16-month-old baby She's girl. Adorable. We love that baby girl. I don't remember being, I must have been, but now as a grandparent many years later, you know, I am so in love with that little baby. And so we really want to have an impact on her, love her as much as we can. So that's currently... A lot of what occupies our time to assist our daughter. All right. It is time to close us out with rapid fire questions. Hey, everyone. Before we get to Paul's rapid fire questions, I need to talk about today's sponsor, you. You in our audience are who got us going and who's going to keep us going. Whether you make a tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holysmokesclub or you become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes, supporting us in those ways are what's going to allow us to take the impact of what Holy Smokes has meant in our lives to a bigger audience. Our culture is hurting. Men and women are lonely. So share this podcast, invite someone for a cigar, and please consider donating at paypal.me slash holysmokesclub or go to patreon.com slash holysmokes and take a look at the bonuses of becoming a regular Patreon supporter, like an ad-free version of this podcast. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. <laughs> Which do you prefer, cigars or pipe? Cigars. How'd you get started with cigars? Due to this guy here, Kay. 
I used to smoke cigarettes rolling my own for years. And I mean, I stopped many, many years ago when I realized my kids were maybe picking up on it. Favorite cigar? LFD La Nox is my favorite currently. LFD La Nox. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? I think more often than not, red wine. Now, I'm also going to ask some questions that are not cigar related. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Cats. Favorite food? Indian. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I love watching action movies. <laughs> <laughs> If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Speeding on the freeway. Favorite book not titled The Holy Bible. And I'm sure for a guy that owns a bookstore, that's going to be a little difficult, but... Shoot, the first one that came to mind is by a Eastern European author, The, the Incredible Lightness of Being. It's probably not that politically correct, but had a big influence on my life many years ago. Most memorable experience with a cigar or a smoke? Working on my front porch, on the computer, catching up on things with a cigar. Where is your go-to place to get smokes? Online, cigar, place, dot biz. What's the best type of cheese? Oh, the stinkier, the softer, the better. <laughs> All right, the last two. If you could have a holy smoke with anyone in history, who would your three guests be? And you can't name Jesus because everyone's going to name Jesus. Attila the Hun. Ooh, why? I just had an affinity with him. I read a lot about him many years ago. My nickname in Rome was Attila the Hun, they called me. Number two. Kennedy, John F. JFK, who was a cigar connoisseur. That's right. That's, I think, why he came to mind, maybe. And, you know... Trump. I would like to have some words with him. Interesting. All right. Final question. If we were to meet one year from now and I had a bottle of champagne, what would we be celebrating? That I have more clarity and or successfully accomplished the passing on of the ministry of the prayer guides. You are looking to hand that off, yeah. sell it essentially yeah. to someone who wants to capture that. Take it further than I can at my age. What do you need to get there? Find two or three younger people with the same passion. All right, Holy Smokes community. You have heard what Paul wants. If this is on your heart, how do people get a hold of you? Paul at worldchristian.com. Worldchristian.com is the bookstore, and you can also find those prayer guides. I highly encourage you get your church, your community plugged in. Buy some of those pamphlets, hand them out, get plugged in with Paul, start to ta help take this message out even more than where it has reached. So, Holy Smokes community, you've heard the gauntlet thrown down. Let's come through for this guy. We love him. <laughs> love you, Paul. Thank you. Paul Felitas, you. you are one of my favorite people in the world. I love you to death, my man. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>